The Master Singers is unlike any of Richard Wagner's other music dramas. It's a comedy. It's set in a historically well-defined time and place rather than a mythical or legendary setting. It is also the only mature Wagner opera to be based on an entirely original story devised by the composer himself. And there is nothing of the supernatural in this opera. And it breaks the composer's own rules about avoiding traditional operatic conventions, such as arias, choruses, and even a quintet. It's also the longest of the music dramas, and in a way, the vindication of bourgeois values over those of an aristocracy. It's the cobbler Hans Sachs who helps the nobleman Walter von Stolzing win the prize and the girl, Pogner's daughter, Eva. The first draft of the story was dated Marienbad, the 16th of July, 1845. Wagner was taking the waters and reading a history of German poetry. The book included chapters on the master song and on Hans Sachs. Later, the composer wrote in a communication to my friends, published in 1851, that Meistersinger was to be a comic opera to follow a tragic opera, i.e. Tannhäuser, just as in Athens, a satire play followed a tragedy. So Wagner would follow Tannhäuser with Meistersinger, the link being that both operas included song contests. A very long evening that would have been. <laughs> uh, having completed the scenario, Wagner began writing the libretto in 1862 and followed this by composing the overture, and the overture was given its first public performance in Leipzig on the 2nd of November 1862, conducted by Wagner himself. Composition of Act One was begun in the spring of 1863 in the Viennese suburb of Pensing, but the opera in its entirety was not finished until four years later. Wagner had great difficulty with this, particularly Act One, when he was living at Trebschen near Lucerne. Indeed, the Master Singers was written during a particularly difficult time for the composer. The 1861 Paris production of Tannhäuser was indeed a fiasco, thanks to the Jockey Club. Wagner gave up at this point hope, perhaps, of completing what he felt was going to be his major work, The Ring of the Nibelung. And the 1864 production in Vienna of Tristan and Isolde was abandoned after 77 rehearsals. Finally, in 1866, Wagner's first wife, Minna, died. The composer's second wife, Cosima, wrote later, when future generations seek refreshment in this unique work, may they spare a thought for the tears from which the smiles arose. Mind you, Cosima spent an awful lot of time crying, as you may remember if you read her diaries. The premiere was given at the Court Theatre in Munich on June 21st, 1868, and it was a triumph. Well, we've more guests this afternoon than ever before to prepare us for this evening's performance. We've Richard Meads, who's the orchestra manager here at English National Opera, and two of his players have brought, so to speak, their harps to the party. Gonzalo Acosta, who's associate leader at English National Opera's principal oboist, Ruth Bolster. We're also going to be joined by Kelvin Lim, a member of the English National Opera's music staff, and by the tenor Anthony Flam, who's covering the role of David in this new production here at the London Coliseum. And our first guest is John Dethridge, who's Emeritus King Edward Professor of Music at King's College in the University of London, and who has, of course, written extensively on the work of Richard Wagner. Will you please welcome John Dethridge? <laughs> John, a very <clears throat> simple starting question. What is it do you think that attracted Wagner to this story when he was reading it in Marienbad? Um, I think he thought it was quite funny or it had possibly, you know, a really funny moment. 
um, it was quite serious, though, in the master singer tradition. It's terribly serious, you know, that the singer sings a song and uh, someone has to mark it. Uh, in fact, um, they had four markers, and they had a Lutheran Bible there to check the rules of the song against the Bible, the text and the content. And Wagner thought, wouldn't it be funny if on stage there could be this scratching sound and there would be this ridiculous situation where someone is trying to sing and get to the end of a song and someone was making these ridiculous noises for pedantic reasons. That's really how it started. It, it is unique, as I've suggested, because this is the only one of the mature works that has a plot entirely invented by yes, Wagner. that's right. I mean, although some of the details are there in the sources, he, he then put together um, a plot that would also include another of the things that occurred to him, which was this idea of crowds suddenly going crazy. Because I think um, th it's probably true, he was in a situation earlier in his life where there was some situation and suddenly the crowd went you know, mad. And, and he thought, this is a very, th I've got to sort of put this on stage somehow, um, this kind of madness. And in a way, the opera is about a, a, a sort of madness. It happens at the end of Act Two now, as we know. So these two things, the, the riotous um, marking of the song for utterly ridiculous reasons, uh, Philistine reasons, <coughs> and the crowd going mad, and also the interest in Hans Sachs, who is a big literary figure. Goethe had praised Hans Sachs and put him on the literary map in Germany. So, it could, you know, it was, it was a gift. Do you think, I mean, it's a comedy. Um, uh, nah, no, it's not really. Okay, explain. Uh, they, he, call, he calls it a comic opera in the draft you mentioned, Cornish opera. But while he was composing it, when he decided to compose it again, you have to remember that he gave up. Can you hear me? He gave up wanting to write it. He gave the draft to Mathilde Weisendonck. He always gave things he didn't want anymore to Mathilde Weisendonck. Um, she, had, she had 50 of his manuscripts, over 50 of his manuscripts. And then one day, um, he asks her for the Master Singer draft back again. This is in 1861. And the question is, well, why, why does he change his mind? And uh, with Wagner, when he changes his mind like this, there's usually one very good reason he needs money. Um, so he had the idea of writing a short opera because the ring was in the drawer. Tristan looked as though it was never going to be performed because it was so unperformable. So why not write a little comic opera that will take me about six months to write and uh, Mr. Schott, my publisher, can give me a good advance for it. Um, and then he had a, another think about this master thing and then he begin, begins to see that he can actually rewrite it and he can rewrite it um, in uh, the way that he's written Tristan and in the, in the sense of Schopenhauer's philosophy. So Hans Sachs, for a start, he basically becomes a kind of philosopher who worries about the madness of the world, because Schopenhauer worried about the madness of the world. And the lovers become kind of Tristan and his older pair, where they're afflicted in their love. You know, this is not in the original version. For example, Walter, at the beginning, is a literary expert. He comes to Nuremberg full of ideas about German literature. And when they ask him to sing a song in the first act, he said, well, um, can I sing something about Parsifal? He says Parsifal, in the, uh, or, or, or um, Krimhild, or someone like that. And the master said, no, nothing high literary like that. You've got to obey the rules. 
In the version we know now, Walter doesn't know anything about literature at all. He comes to Nuremberg on business, and he, then he says something interesting. He says, there, I wish I had never entered Pogner's house. And that isn't because his business dealings were a failure. It's because he met the girl. And if you know anything about Wagner, boy meets girl is terribly complicated. Boy should never meet girl, really, because if they do, it's fated. And you want to get away from it. You are afflicted by sex. So they are afflicted by sex, and you know that they're going to escape into some sort of unknown place in the second act. The point about the second act is that Hans Sachs tries to prevent them so unlike Tristan and Isolde, instead of going into the Liebesnacht, Liebestod, Zachs realizes this could have a fatal conclusion and puts all these obstacles in the way of the lovers and basically saves their lives. So the, the song in the third act then turns into this emancipatory um, uh, thing about life and the value of art, in other words, turning it into the exact opposite of Tristan. So he thought it would be a terribly good idea to then write this so-called comic opera, which was the kind of reverse of Tristan, also musically, because it's very tonal in the foreground, but in the background you hear all these chromaticisms like Tristan, and Tristan is even quoted in the, in the, in the third act. So. The trouble was, it took him a long time to do this, and it turned into something that was not really so comic anymore, because underneath, there's this rather pessimistic strain. When, when Hans Sachs has his monologue at the beginning of Act Three, he's basically coming to terms with the madness of the world, which is a big, Schopenhauer's big thing about the will, that we're all driven by our will. Not, our intellects are basically subsumed under this force of nature, and we've got to come to terms with this by relinquishing these things, reflecting on it, and being sympathetic to the suffering of others, and so forth. So uh, this word van in the monologue is, is very important, madness. How does Wagner justify himself the, to the breaking of his entire aesthetic rules, that he writes an opera that is much closer to conventional operatic form than he has for a while? Ah, uh, there's no problem. Absolutely no problem <laughs> with that. <laughs> All you do, he does it in the ring too, by the way, this. All you do is you write an aria. Okay. Having said, I'm not going to write any arias anymore. I'm not going to write any ensembles. It's all got to be through composed. Um, but, but you say, I'm going to write an aria, but I'm going, to in, I'm going to write it in inverted commas. You understand what I mean? Even the overture is in inverted commas. Wagner had given up writing overtures. So I'm going to write an overture that's an overture about an overture. <laughs> so I write an aria that's not really an aria. It's an aria about an aria. So it distances the, the, the idea. But at the same time, I have to make it very attractive and theatrically effective. Sort of, it's a kind of postmodern way of going about it. So there's no, there's no problem at all. It won't contradict what I've done before, because it's a playful, uh, it's a playful trope, we say, in academic circles. Irony is the I, word. Well, it's a, I'm not sure that irony is the right word here, actually. I, I, I disagree with that, I think. Um, but it's basically justifying, 
justifying the, the, the through composed work and actually consolidating it? The, the, the moment I suppose that audiences certainly in the last 70 years, 75 years have stumbled up over, have stuck their foot upon, is the moment when Hans Sachs in the last act talks about holy German art. Yes. Uh, and then we faintly look at our feet and shuffle. Should we, or are they perfectly acceptable? Well, you're, you're not the only one, because Wagner himself had, you know, there's a, there's a long uh, period where he's discussing with Cosima and lots of other people about whether he should finish the opera after the singing of the Bride song, or whether he should have this final tableau. And the, the reason for that is that, uh, you know, Walter gets first prize, doesn't he? He wins the competition. You said he wins the girl, and so forth. Um, and Zachs, by the way, gets second prize, because the second prize in the Master Singer cult is the wreath. Okay, the first prize is the silver chain. In Wagner, it's a gold chain. So he gets the first prize, and basically he, he should dominate the situation. And for Wagner, this is the revolution arrived at last. Music has overcome the word, or the logos. You know, so the, it's, it's all basically an attack on the Lutheran Bible, on the whole idea of judging the prize song by Lutheran principles. We have to get beyond this to another stage. It's a sort of post-Christian work in that sense, in my view. Trouble is, as we all know, as you probably all know, and if you don't know, you're about to find out, Walter turns down the offer, doesn't he? He says, no, I don't want it. And it's shocking because the audience goes like this. And then Hans Sachs, who's got second prize, comes to the rescue and said, OK, we're going to restore order. Because this is all about order. It's a biblical, it's a biblical fight between disorder and order. And Beckmesser, who represents order, because he's the one who gives the rules, he is presented as very disordered. And Walter, who is allegedly disordered, becomes very ordered, but in this higher emotional sense. But then Zach says, I'm going to restore order with a speech about our German masters. So in a, in a way, the revolution goes backwards. And um, if I were producing this, I would, I would say to Walter, you know, you've got to act as if you're, by giving up, that you're signing a pact with the devil after all because this is going to lead, if you restore the old order, it's going to lead to something that you've been fighting against all your, um, or certainly during the time of the opera and your instincts. So it's very ambiguous, basically. And, and um, I, I hope the uh, producer tonight will sort of play that one out because it's a, it's a very tricky moment, isn't it? And oh, he says, indeed. I don't want to be a master. No, thank you. Well, what have we been sitting there all evening for then? <laughs> And no one as a friend of mine said has ever turned the Eurovision Song Contest down. No. <laughs> John, uh, thank you so much. A wonderfully elegant exposition in an amazingly short time of an amazingly complex opera. Stay with us, thank please. You. Thank you very much indeed. Can I introduce our next guest? They are Richard Meads, who is the orchestra manager here at English National Opera, and with him, Gonzalo Acosta, who is the associate leader of the orchestra, and Ruth Bollister, the principal oboist. Please welcome three musical guests. <laughs> Can we lend you a microphone? Yeah. Um, 
Richard, first of all, um, just briefly, what does the orchestra manager do? OK, so uh, my role as orchestra manager is that I have to uh, manage the 69 contracted musicians that are employees of ENO, so very large orchestra. And there are three people in my department, um, an assistant orchestra manager, myself, the orchestra manager, and an orchestra logistics manager. And essentially, our daily role is to try and make the life for Ruth and Gonzalo and the rest of the orchestra as easy as possible. So we have to make sure that they're scheduled for the work they need to be scheduled for, that they're paid. They will agree that that is very important. Um, as well as booking rehearsal venues, extra members that we need for large operas such as Wagner. Um, so everything that they do is sort of managed by us to make it as easy as possible for them. And how easy are musicians to manage? <laughs> <laughs> now, <laughs> the honest answer is they're very easy to manage. They're no different to anybody else. Of course, when you're managing a large, um, a large group of people, there, there are difficulties. But, but no more than any other place. So it's a pleasure to work for them. And do you have a hand in recruiting new players to the orchestra? Yes, so our recruitment process is um, an interesting one, I'm sure. Um, we form a panel uh, which is comprised of seven musicians from the orchestra and the orchestra manager. And the then panel of eight go through a journey where they um, shortlist from CVs and then they'll hear auditions and then they'll hear people on trial. And typically this lasts... I would say, on average, about two years. It's a very lengthy process. Um, do you, can, as you're going through those CVs, as you're working with your own existing members of the orchestra, do you recognise something one might call uh, an Eno orchestral player? Is there a kind of identity? Yeah, I thought, I thought long and hard about this one. And I think, for, for me, I think it's someone that's a fantastic musician, first of all. Um, is someone who has a real passion for opera and a team player. And I think where, where being in an opera company is very different is that playing night after night together, I think, develops a real relationship between the players and a real relationship between the company. And I think you get this... They're very sympathetic of each other's needs in a performance. And the singers are supported by the orchestra, and the orchestra are supported by the singers that are supported by the cast and the crew and stage management. And you get this really amazing moment where it all comes together in this unique chemistry. And that's one of the reasons that I love working here, is you have these sort of, I would say, an epic moment, like our Peter Grimes prom, where... Although it was semi-staged, there was a there's a real company piece about Peter Grimes, and to perform it at the Royal Albert Hall in the Prom series for us to get out of the building that we're in and say, "Here we are. This is what we do every day in the pit." And there was a real buzz about that for me. Richard, thank you very much. We might turn the question back to our two guests who are players. Gonzalo, um, what for you is special about being a member of this orchestra? Well, everything that Richard said is, is absolutely true. Um, What's great about working here in particular is we, we would spend two, two months, two and a half months on one work, which means we can really get inside the music. We get to know it very, very well. Unlike perhaps a symphony orchestra that might just do one programme for maybe a week maximum, we can do eight, ten, twelve performances and we get, hopefully, it improves and improves. Um, that's a great joy. And I think what Richard said as well, we get to know each other very well as well in the orchestra. Um, Special, special family, yes. Ruth, is it also, I mean, the extraordinary repertoire, as well as belonging to a group of players, um, as well as spending a lot of time learning a piece of music, it's the sheer variety of the repertoire you're playing? 
Yeah, I think that is totally unique for our orchestra out of any orchestra I can think of. Because at the moment, in our days in between performing this, we're rehearsing The Indian Queen by Henry Purcell. And there's many, almost nowhere, where you'd actually still play that on modern instruments. And that's something that's very fantastic here, is that we still get to work on these very early pieces, Rameau, Purcell and Handel, in a sympathetic style, the same time as we're going to be doing Sondheim, or we were doing the, a sort of brand new work by John Adams. I've always thought it about a musician, it maybe might seem objective, a little curious that you'd want to hide in the pit under the stage, <laughs> rather than sit on the platform at the Festival Hall or the Barbican or any of the concert halls in London. You know, you're kind of hidden away like Nibelungs. <laughs> Does that matter? Sometimes it does. I think, like, um, like um, Rich says, that moment when we were sort of able to come out at the prom was really important to us. And I think a lot of us, when we can, if it fits around, people do go and play in the other orchestras around London sometimes, which I think is really important when we can from time to time that one does remember to, to sit on a stage and keep that ability. I think one thing that's good about being in the pit is the fact that you're in a safe environment with colleagues who we trust very much and we get to do, for example, eight performances of the Master Singers, it, it enables you to take risks. Um, and the, like, is it, I think this, um, to come back to this idea that during a run, how the, it develops a life of its own, or somebody might stretch a phrase one way and then you respond to that, or you almost keep it and then the next performance that changes. I think that life through there is very important. And that's something that we can do because we are in that environment that's safe. Gonzalo, is a performance of Wagner in this house with this orchestra always something special for you? Oh, absolutely. I mean. I think you've already mentioned it's a marathon, uh, so you, you have to be very fit physically, <laughs> but also uh, mentally. I mean, it's nearly six hours, I think, you'll be here this evening. Um, it's a joy to play. It's technically very challenging. And I think another difference that we have, as opposed to a, a typical symphony orchestra, I think we are pretty much accompanying for the whole of the time. So it, you really need your antennae up all the time, because every night is different, guaranteed. So that's a real challenge and one of the reasons why I've been here as long as I have, really. Ruth, give me an idea of what perhaps the pleasures are. What are, musically, the, the, the Everests that await you during your six hours in, the, in this opera? What are the things that really give you pause for thought? Um, there's some wonderful writing for the oboe, if I might play some bit. So, I, mean, I, I just think Wagner writes so well for the oboe. It's a massive challenge because of... I'm sort of blowing down this tube, really, for, for the best part of it. And in fact, um, this is more so in the Master Singers, because his writing in Master Singers is essentially like writing for a chamber orchestra, but over a huge period of time. For, in the other Wagner operas, Parsifal, Tristan, and in The Ring, there's four oboes, so there's a huge team. Whereas the woodwind in Master Singers is basically like a Mozart setup or Beethoven, two of all the woodwind, and we've just got the extra piccolo. So it's much more filigree and detailed all the time. Um, I was going to give my reed a little uh, squeak. With the oboe, it all comes down to our reeds. I handcraft these, and this is one challenge of playing um, Wagner is these little reeds. At the moment, I'm getting one master singers out of every reed. <laughs> I thought I got two, and then I needed two to get through the next and last one. <laughs> 
and that's where it all comes from. So I'd like to play you a little bit in the first scene. Just get operational. beginning and then I mean I could just play a little bit but when when we get the lovely and um, belted big prize song comes on I get to play along with that which is very nice so I sort of oh, the oboe it's so often shadowing the voices and that's a great treat for me you have to sort of develop this sixth sense of what's going on behind us because you have to bear in mind where I'm sitting I can't see anything it's like sort of driving without a rear view mirror <laughs> but I have this sense something's going on I've got to fit in with so and I'll just um, one other little bit I can play you is when the um, when the special song comes at the end. Other moments for the for you and for the for the for the first violins uh, of, of comparable quality that stand out in the school. We we play most of the time as an ensemble, of course, in the first violins, where, whereas Ruth gets these gets these lovely solo moments. But we do get some long melodies as well. I, I think it's interesting. There's one melody that um, we have in the overture, which appears in E major, and then whenever it appears in the third act, it's always in C major. I don't know if that's relevant. You probably have something to add about that. But um, if I just play a little bit of that, perhaps. music staff, and the tenor, Anthony Flam, who's covering the role of David. Will you welcome them, please? I'm afraid, Anthony, you have to talk as well as sing for your supper at these oh, events. Um, I'll do my best. <laughs> tell me, um, what exactly is the journey that David, who is Hans Sachs' apprentice, makes through the three acts of his opera? Um, well, essentially, he, he becomes a man, in inverted commas, as, as John said before. Um, he starts off um, uh, the, the story as um, Hans Axe's apprentice, um, and um, he, he's 
tries very hard to do the right thing, um, to become a poet and a master singer. Um, uh, but uh, he keeps screwing up, uh, for want of a better phrase. Um, and um, Hans Sachs gives him a clip round the ear or, uh, or the, the leather strap um, throughout the story. Um, but at the end, um, he has a, quite a nice, um, a nice ending to the story because when the master song is born, um, it has to be baptised. Um, and uh, um, a witness is needed. So um, David, as an apprentice, cannot witness this um, bap uh, baptism. Um, so Hans Sachs makes him a full journeyman, which then enables him to um, uh, uh, be eligible to marry the love of his life, Magdalena. So he has quite a, um, quite a, quite a journey through the story of becoming this try-hard, um, <clears throat> perennially nervous um, apprentice <clears throat> uh, through to a confident journeyman um, at the end. Is it the kind of paralleling his story and his relationship with Madalena with the story of Ava and Walter? Um, yeah, um, uh, I, I would definitely say so. Um, John um, actually mentioned before why David is, uh, um, is, uh, is called David. Maybe you can um, say that more eloquently well, than I can. It's this on. Uh, it's an inversion. Um, Wagner wants to make everything topsy-turvy, so he's named the so-called minor character, who, as you're saying, is not that minor, really, mm. after the big cheese of the Master Singer uh, Guild, historically, which is King David. So mm. King David, in all the illustrations of the Master Singer, is always at the top. And so here we've got someone at the bottom, but who is extremely important, if only because he actually teaches Walter everything he wants to know about the Master Singers. <laughs> Remember, Walter doesn't know any, he doesn't even heard of the Master Singers yep. until David comes along and gives him this lesson at the, yeah. at the beginning. And then, as you were saying, he has another journey to get the girl mm. himself, a different kind of one. Yeah. It's so an important role. I would, I would definitely draw him... Um, uh, um, Draw Walter and David in, in, in the same on the same bit of paper, if you will. What what are David's feelings about Zach? Um, he has ultimate respect for Zach's. Um, he's his master. Um, at the end of the day, um, and um, he's very keen to impress um, Zach's. Um, I think there's a, a huge element of pride that David is Zach's apprentice, um, and it's, it borders on arrogance, particularly in this production. Um, <clears throat> David's kind of a bit, um, a bit arrogant and a bit um, aggressive towards the other apprentices. Um, in that, you know, I know best. Just do what I say and, and stop annoying me. Um, but that's this uh, production's interpretation. But um, uh, David is um, is certainly respectful and afraid of Zach's because, as the other apprentices keep reminding David. Um, he knows the, the knee strap tune very well um, <laughs> and the hearty kick tune um, as, as well as you'll see later on in the piece. Um, so he does quite often get beaten by Zach's. Um, so he's in awe of him, respects him, is afraid of him, um, wants to be like him. Um, and at the end, I think there is a certain a certain element of love for him because as he's singing um, in, the, uh, uh, in the festival scene, um, me personally, I just smile. Um, so I think there is an element of love between uh, David and Zach's as well. One of the challenges vocally, and obviously it's an extraordinary long mm. role in a long opera, well, but... I was going to say, um, that <laughs> is, uh, is the challenge. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's five hours long. Um, but... Um, the way, uh, the way it's set in, um, in the aria that, um, that I'll sing in a bit, um, 
the voice does jump around, um, but Wagner's written it so that it's, it's, um, uh, David is demonstrating to Walter how to sing. So it's, it's very cleverly written. Um, there's lines like um, where he mentions about coloratura, um, and Wagner sets that on a piece of coloratura. So it's, it's, it's very, uh, it's very uh, cleverly written. However, because the voice does jump around a bit, um, it, is, uh, it is quite challenging. Um, and especially in this, uh, uh, in this first act, um, it's, uh, it's quite a mammoth um, section. So when you talk about traditional arias, um, in Puccini, you know, it might be a few minutes long, a few pages long. Um, this section, um, I'm only going to sing a portion of it, but this section is about 30 pages long. Um, so it's not really an aria, it's, it's almost an act in itself. Um, <laughs> but, um, uh, but he has a, a, a physical um, journey as well as, uh, as well as a vocal journey through the piece. Um, you, you've been working, I think, with Kelvin in preparing yourself for, yes. for this. Mm. How do you work um, in preparing yourself with uh, a, a member of the music staff? Um, each singer has his own approach, really, um, to, uh, uh, to music and to different styles of music. Um, the first thing I do is um, get a recording, um, a good recording, um, and listen and just kind of bathe myself in the music for, for want of a less pretentious phrase um, and, uh, and just get the feel of the music first um, then obviously the translation um, is very important in, in this house um, so, um, so you look at how the, uh, how the words are set to the music um, and then it's a question of um, of course all, all the physical stuff of getting, getting into your body um, uh, is, is, all, is all taken for but what our job is is to make this sound as if we're just talking. Um, obviously, this is a piece about singing, but um, when Walter is uh, when David is teaching Walter how to sing, he's explaining the rules. So he's he is demonstrating, um, but it's my job to make that look easy. Um, it's not, um, <laughs> um, but. Um, uh, but in order to do that, you have to practice and practice and practice um, with the words and try and make each musical phrase seem like a sentence. Um, and sometimes there are long notes. Um, and in normal speech, I wouldn't speak like that. Um, but in music, there is these long notes. So you have to try and make sense of the musical line because text is very important in, in most pieces, and particularly in this one. You're going to sing a little of David's aria from Act One, in which he's endeavouring to explain to Walter yes. what singing is all about. Anything else we need to know before you and Kelvin perform for us? Um, no, what I would say is, is listen out to the, um, to the little um, sections where um, he explains about um, how to sing, um, about coloratura. Listen out for those little things, because they're very uh, cleverly written. Um, and in this aria, um, Walter also has some interjecting lines. Um, uh, and we don't have a, a Valter today, so they will just be played on the piano by, um, by Kelvin. <clears throat> The master singer's way cannot be learnt in just one day. 
In Nuremberg, the finest master is a renowned Hans Hartz. For a year or more, he's been my teacher, so I can learn both his traits. Shoemaker's craft and poet's art, both together I learn by heart. First I am taught how to beat the nether, then how the words sound pleasing together. Once I have stiffened the thread with wax, then on to rhyme, no time to relax. With clever stitching, I make things neat, and then I learn about stress and beat with leather and lust. What's slow or fast, what's hard or light, gloomy or bright, the scissors, the snippings, the word clippings, the pauses, the cons, the flowers, the thorns. I learn all this with care and pain. What outcome, tell me, does it attain? Right, and there's still no time to lose. A song of many stanzas is made where the copious rules are strictly obeyed. And rightly stitched and deftly pitched, both sections fitting nicely, both sure and song precisely. And then there comes the after song, neither too short nor yet too long. Also let no rhyme be heard that has already occurred. When all is your bread marked and learned, still the right to be called master you've not earned. singer to that I aspire. Believe me, the patience you'll require. The master's tones and melodies are many in name and kind. The strong ones and the gentle, it is hard to know them all. The short and long and overlong tones, the paper mode, black writing mode. The crimson, blue, and green tones. The strawberry, hawthorn, fennel mode. The tender, the sweetened, the rosy tone. The fleeting passion, the forgotten. 
Captain Tone, the rosemary or flower mode, the rainbow mode, and the nightingale mode, the mode of English tin, the cinnamon mode, fresh pomegranates and linden tree mode, the frog, the calf, the lilac mode. The long departed glutton mode, the skylark, the snail tone, the bucket tones, and the honey blossom, the marjoram, the lion skin, floor pelican mode, the bright glittering thread mode. That's just what we name them. Next comes the singing, just as the masters show their skill. Take every word and set them ringing. The voice must rise or fall at will. Don't start too high or low in pitch, but place the notes where the voice can reach. With a breath, take care, control the attack for fear of ending with a crack. At the start of a word, you must not hum at its finish. No surplus of aula should come. Don't alter the bloom. Oh, colorator, it craze not fixed by the master's rules. For if you go wrong, stumble or trip, or lose yourself, or make just one slip, you sing correctly all this you are still rejected despite much industry and zeal I never yet have done so well whenever I try the one thing it brings is the knee strap song which my master then sings and if Magdalena can't help me out I sing a simple prayer It's harder than it seems. Forget your master dreams. Tell singer and poet you have been. both. An elegant singing lesson. Thank you very, very much indeed. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we've run to the end of our allotted time. Some thank yous. Thank you to all of you uh, for being here with us this afternoon. I hope that you'll have a superb evening uh, in the house when the show begins. Uh, other thanks, of course, to our guests, John Dethridge, Richard Meads, Gonzalo Acosta, Ruth Bollister, Anthony Flam and Kelvin Lim. Thank you all very much for being with us this afternoon. <laughs>